All right, we're going to connect up now? Yeah. All right, let's go. I love that, I love that Skype sound. Keeps me connected with my kids. So very cool. Hello? Dr. Bill Rhodes. Hello. This is Kirk. Hey, Kirk. How are you? I'm doing fine, my brother. How's your family? Everybody's good. Our power was out, but it just came back on. We didn't know if you wanted to try and Skype or if you want to do it like this. No, just keep talking. The technical team is, okay. is saying just talk. Let me tell you what we have, Bill. We have Cornerstone Church San Francisco, which is, um, uh, you being a California guy, is uh, in the Castro? Mission District. Mission District. Uh -huh. In the Mission District. I just got word from the leader that it's the same. So, so let, me give you, let me give you an update, Bill. Um, we, have, okay. we have the top leaders, the men here. There's about 125, 130 leaders here. These guys are, are, uh -huh. you know, are in um, the, the toughest city, I believe, in the U.S. and uh, trying to live mm -hmm. out their faith. And I, start, right. I started speaking last night here at Mount Hermon, uh, two sessions, and the theme of our conference is called Risk. Uh, being willing to risk our hearts, okay. risk leadership, risk vision. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about risking um, courage uh, to accomplish what God's <clears throat> called us to. And I have told them about my journey to Samaritan's Purse. Um, I talked about my trip up there to meet you and your, your wonderful wife and, and, uh, and your two boys. Um, and I uh -huh. felt like God had put on my heart your testimony because of the theme of being willing to uh, stay committed uh, to hit the mark. And so I just wanted, right. I wanted you to share with these men uh, your journey, give them a snapshot, bringing them up to uh, today, what today's been like there at Capsilwar, what you've been doing, and then back up to where you were when God found you in California, and then take, you on, take them on the journey to, to this present day. Okay. I can do that. First, I'd just like to say uh, hello to all the brothers there. Uh, I was born up near San Francisco in Woodland, so I wish I could be there in person uh, to be with you all. We're in Capsular, Kenya, which is in the highlands of Kenya, in a small mission hospital here, 80 beds. Uh, we have two or three general practice physicians here in the hospital, and I'm the surgeon here, and we treat uh, an area, a district here in Kenya called Marakwet, one of 46 tribes here in Kenya, and uh, the population that we reach is over 250,000 people. We are the only hospital in the district, and that's where we are, and our day began early this morning. Uh, we usually begin with prayer in the morning, and then we go to the hospital. And today, uh, we just operated till about 6:30 tonight, uh, finishing up with a young man who has 30% uh, third-degree burns over the total body surface area uh, he sustained in a in a fire recently. So I'd ask you to pray for him if you remember him. At, 
at noontime that he would get better and that we can help this young man in the name of Jesus here. Um, the, who is here right now is Laura, my wife, who Kirk, you met. And uh, anything that I say tonight, I, you know, is, is a both of us. There's nothing, there's nothing that's just uh, single about this. This is, this is a journey of uh, at least two people and then ultimately our entire family. Judah, our youngest son, is here. He just turned 17 last week, and we even have our nephew here who's 18 years old from the U.S. visiting us for six weeks. And that's all that's here. We've got a daughter who's married, um, and they're studying in Jerusalem right now. And then we've got a son who's a pre-med student at Colorado State University and a daughter who is a pre-nursing student at Kent State University in Ohio and will be getting married here in Katsawar uh, sometime after Christmas in just about six weeks' time. So we're all looking forward to that event. And the whole community is really looking forward to that, that event. It'll be a major happening. Our journey, I guess, would, uh, would start. Um, you know, everybody's got a story, Kirk, and I, I, you know, this is, this is our story. And I guess I'd like to, I'd like to say that I'd like to, somebody to pass along our email address if, if there's any of the, the men there that would like to share their story with me or if they have any insights or questions or, or any desires to, to come on out here, either singly or as a family or as a church group or whatever, we would welcome them here. We would love to have them. But like Kirk said, I was born in California, raised there until junior high. To God-fearing parents, my dad graduated from the University of California at Davis, he's a World War II veteran, and both my parents were God-fearers, but they didn't know Jesus until oh, they're in their 50s. And they moved us out to Colorado when I was in junior high school, and I wasn't too excited about that and the, the transition. And I went through a lot of the adolescent uh, problems and, and troubles uh, of that time in the late 60s and early 70s. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was ready to to get out of high school, uh, to get ready to get out of school uh, completely. But I met Laura, my future wife there, and her story really is is singly incredible. She comes from a, a Mormon background, and after we had dated for about a year, uh, she came to faith. I met her when I was just a, a baby believer. I became a believer in my late teens, and uh, it dramatically changed my life. He drew me out of a, a very dark pit and uh, set me upon a rock, and uh, my life was dramatically changed in every way. But I had no desire to, to go to college or pursue any education. I was on the road when I graduated from high school in 1972 and crisscrossed the country in every form and fashion possible, from hitchhiking to riding the bicycle to whatever else in between. And my wife and I were married when I was 20 and she was 19. And for a lot of the first year, we lived in our Volkswagen bus, 1960 VW bus. And uh, we lived uh, around the country. And we ended up going to Bible school in Tennessee for a year when I was 22. My brother had gotten out of the service. He'd become a believer while in Germany and uh, came home and said he was going to Bible school. And since I had come to faith and was really interested in knowing the Word, I decided I would go to Bible school as well. 
So we did that, and we were down in Tennessee for a year in Bible school, and then we transferred to a little Bible college in Denver, Colorado, where we finished our studies, and Laura and I got the idea that we would like to study further in Jerusalem, Israel. And so I did a master's degree in Hebrew language in Jerusalem and finished that in about 1979 or 1980. And it was at that point in our lives when we really started to consider what we were really going to do with the rest of our lives. At that time, I was 26. Laura was pregnant with our first child. She was teaching school in Jerusalem. I was doing further studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and we thought we, that we really wanted to do something in the developing world, but we really weren't sure in what capacity God would want us uh, in. And I really struggled with that for a number of months. Um, at that time, we were living outside of Jerusalem in what's considered New Testament Emmaus, where Jesus walks after the, his resurrection and meets two disciples outside of Jerusalem. We were living there, and I can remember many days I would go up to an old Roman ruin where an old Roman fortress was up above where we were living, and I would just pray and meditate, asking God what he would want for us to do. I was considering maybe trying to go on and do some Ph.D. studies in Semitic languages, but really not understanding or knowing how that would fit into working in the developing world. And it was at that time we were headed up to Nazareth one day, and uh, we picked up a couple of hitchhikers on the way. We had a soft spot in our heart for hitchhikers since I had done a lot of it. And uh, these two guys were from the U.K. Uh, one of them was only 19 years old. And I got to talking to him and found out he was a believer as well. And so I asked him what he was, what he was doing, and he said he had just finished his first year of medical studies in uh, England. And that just blew me away because as a believer, I could understand higher education, studying uh, to know the Bible better or to do uh, Hebrew or Greek studies or to do archaeology or historical geography. That made sense to me. But I had no background whatsoever in anything else, whether it was engineering or business or medicine or law or, or whatever. And I could not understand why we would be interested in studying that. And so I looked at this sort of fresh-faced 19-year-old kid in the car, and I just asked him point blank. I said, why, as a believer, are you studying medicine? And Kirk, his answer changed my life, as you know. It changed the direction and the whole course of our life. He looked back at me and said in a very soft voice, I'd just like to see if I couldn't, in some small way, uh, minister to people somewhere, in some small corner of the world someday, in the name of Jesus. And that just, that just touched my heart right there at, at that at that moment, I knew that's exactly what I had been looking for. It was like a light bulb went on in my heart. And uh, we returned to Jerusalem the next day. And I said to Laura, who is now about five months pregnant, I, I said, what would you think if we moved back to the U.S.? And uh, I studied medicine so that we could do something in the developing world with that someday in the name of Jesus. And she knew me from high school. She knew that I had 
barely finished high school. She knew that I had never taken a math or science course after my sophomore year in high school. And she knew that I had missed, I think, uh, about 60 days in uh, one semester, my senior year. I hated school so much. And she just looked at me and said, well, if you are serious about that, you're going to have to start all over. You're going to have to go and, and take all the math and science that's required. And she brought home a, a high school chemistry and algebra book, I remember, from the school she was teaching at in Jerusalem while I was still studying at the Hebrew University. And I just looked at that stuff, and it looked like a foreign language to me. But after our oldest daughter was born, about eight months later, we moved back to the U.S., and I, I enrolled at the University of Colorado and found myself uh, taking the pre-med courses, but in way over my head. I had very, very little idea what, what I was doing in those courses. Um, I was working in a nursing home as an orderly four nights a week to 3 to 11 shift. Um, I was really struggling with, with the coursework. It was really difficult. I had no background in it. And uh, we had a stillborn child at that time during our time in, in Boulder. And I thought I could be able to do this pre-med studies in about two years' time. But at the end of two years, uh, I still hadn't finished it, and my science GPA was, was very, very low. And so I decided just to continue to take courses to see if I couldn't get that GPA up. And I turned two years into four years and ended up with, a, with another uh, undergraduate degree, this time in biology, just trying to get my GPA up and, uh, to be competitive to get into medical school. And so we applied to about 20 different medical schools in the country, and uh, I ended up not getting a single interview at any of the medical schools. I, I think it's safe to say that uh, I was rejected by some of the finest medical schools in the country. And I went so far as to, to find out that uh, most people uh, believed that I never would get in. By this time, I was 31 years old. Uh, our oldest son was then born. We had two kids. But the vision was still, was still very, very real in our hearts to minister in the name of Jesus somewhere in the developing world, in the field of medicine. And since we didn't get into medical, since I didn't get into medical school, we decided to move down to Jackson, Mississippi, and work with an organization called Voice of Calvary Ministries, a ministry begun by uh, John Perkins, who now has a ministry in Pasadena as well. Some of the brothers there may be familiar with him. And I, I was the laboratory technician in the inner city health uh, clinic there in Jackson. We lived and worked in the inner city as a, as a Christian community of both African-Americans and, and uh, white Americans and uh, tried to demonstrate to the, to the people there in Jackson the unity of the, of the body of Christ. And I still was trying to get into medical school, and so we reapplied. And uh, this time we narrowed the field just because it was so expensive to apply. And again, I did not get in. I did get one interview that time back at the University of Colorado, took a flight back there to Colorado, had the interview, had my hopes were very, very high, and then I got the rejection letter. 
And so I called the dean of the medical school up and asked him what the what seemed what was the problem with getting in. And he said, Your GPA, your science GPA is so low, he said, there you don't have a chance of ever getting in to medical school. Yeah, well, at that point I decided, you know, maybe I ought to try and get some advice from somebody else who maybe knows more about this than I do. And so I went to the dean of the School of Medicine there at Ole Miss in Jackson, Mississippi, and I asked him what I would have to do to be competitive to get into medical school. I asked him, should I go back and do a master's degree in nutrition, or what, what would help my chances to gain acceptance into medical school? And he said about the only thing you could do he said, would be to go back and do all the pre-medical school requirements again and get straight A's in them. And he said, and I can't guarantee that you would get accepted uh, in doing that, but he said, if you want to know what would make you most competitive, that's probably what it would take. Well, we still felt very, very uh, firm in our desire to minister in the name of Jesus, and so that's what we did. I enrolled at the university in the community, which was Jackson State University. And I was the only white guy on campus there, home of uh, Walter Payton. And uh, I did all the pre-medical school courses again and um, applied during that time again for the third time. And on the third, on the third try, I did not get in again. And so we decided to go ahead and complete the courses as was recommended, and I reapplied, and in the year 1988, I was finally granted accepted in the, acceptance in the medical school at the University of Mississippi in Jackson. And I finished four years of medical school. Laura and I lived uh, with our four kids now by the time we finished medical school. Um, in an area of 550 square feet, student housing, there in Jackson, Mississippi. In fact, Laura, who is always taking care of the finances, uh, I remember her telling me during that time, we, we were married 18 years, and she said these first 18 years of our married life, we've been below the poverty level the entire time. And I finished with two major distinctions, uh, Kirk, from medical school. I finished with the most in our, in our medical school class. I finished with the most kids, four, and I finished as the oldest student, 38. And we decided that uh, surgery would probably be the best preparation for the mission field. And though it's the longest uh, residency training period, we decided to pursue that even at the age of 38. And I remember as I interviewed for general surgery spots around the country, many program directors would tell me, you're too old to do surgery. You won't make it through the program. The program is rugged. It's grueling. Um, some programs boasted 50% uh, divorce rates of, of their residents, uh, stating how dedicated their surgeons were that, that finished, that they'd be willing to give up family uh, for the training period. And the training back then, it's changed a little bit in the past few years, but the training back then was grueling in general surgery. I gained a spot in general surgery in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Laura would tell me that uh, many, many, many weeks for five years 
straight. I worked 120 hours a week in the hospital. Uh, that five-year period is sort of a blur to me, except highlights uh, in the children's lives and um, for the training period. But I do remember as I was finishing up in my chief year in general surgery there, operating with uh, an attending surgeon, middle of the night, during a trauma. You got to know these guys pretty good. And as we were closing an abdomen, I remember he looked across the table at me and he said, everybody knew what I, what I intended to do, what we intended to do after the training, that we intended to go somewhere where the need uh, was great. We just, I remember he looked across the table at me, we were closing, the music's playing, and he goes, Rhodes, you must be crazy to go and throw all this training away after working this hard and go work somewhere where you're not even going to get paid for it. And I remember looking back across the table with him, Kirk, looking him straight in the eye and saying to him, I would never work this hard for money. And uh, that, that essentially, I think, is something that we as believers need to understand. Our, our purpose, our focus should be so much higher than anything that we can gain, either monetary or, or materially, uh, for these few years here on Earth. And it was Becky Williams at Samaritan's Purse who called us uh, shortly after that in our chief year of surgery, getting ready to finish the training. And she told us about a little hospital in Capsular, Kenya, where we are now. And she said that it had been struggling for years, that it hadn't been able to get a surgeon for years. It was so remote. No one wanted to go there. Those that did go here were afraid to stay here. And uh, the people were desperate for a surgeon. There was no other hospital in the district. And consequently, many people died because there was, there was no one to give care. And so Laura talked to her, and, uh, and then she called me and said, uh, Becky just called from Samaritan's Purse. There's a hospital here in, Caps- in Capsula that really needs a surgeon. And we tried to find it on a map. It's so small. It's so remote. It's not, it wasn't even on any maps we could find. But in uh, 1999, after finishing all of that and taking the boards and, and getting ready to go, uh, we moved over here with our four kids. Um, and... And we were ready to, and we were finally ready. And uh, to show how involved our entire family had been with with this vision, that it wasn't just me, or it just wasn't Laura and me, but it was it was all of our kids from from the time that they could begin to understand. We had asked our oldest daughter, who was about 15 at the time, and had gone through all of this. She went to medical school classes with me, uh, even, and they all went through the surgery residency training with me. And we said to, we said to our oldest Abby, we said, you know, maybe we should stay in the U S for a couple of years and try and make enough money to pay back our student loans. We owed $60,000 at that time. And Abby looked at us and she said, if you stay in the U S for even two years, she said, I will never have the opportunity 
to fulfill this dream and vision that we have been involved in our entire lives. And so we decided at that, at that time, you know, forget the, forget the debt. We'll take care of it while we're out here on the field. We'll let God figure out a way to do that. And we came over here. And just as a side note, to show God's faithfulness without ever, ever actively sharing that debt with anyone, that debt was completely paid within 18 months of our being here. And that's a story all by itself. But we got over here and we, we were, you know, this is about seven or eight hours drive, Kirk, as you know now, uh, from Nairobi. We are really out in the sticks. Uh, our power is on and off all the time. In fact, it was off tonight. It just came back on now. I don't know how long it'll stay. But there's no pavement. There's absolutely no asphalt in our entire district. And, in fact, on our way up here, the day that another doctor uh, was driving us up here, took two days to drive from Nairobi. The vehicle broke down, and we all slept in the back of his truck on the way up here on the side of the road before we actually got up here. The Saturday afternoon, when we finally were rolling up uh, into Capsuar, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I, I turned to Laura and I said, you know, Laura, it took us 17 years to get up this bumpy, dirty road. But God was faithful, and uh, and we got here. And we've been here ever since. Uh, our kids call this home. The, I think the testament to that is our youngest daughter is wants to be married here. She's marrying a guy who's graduating from college uh, that she met in Ohio uh, this December. And she wants to be married here. She, she considers this home. She's, been, she's worked in the OR with me since she's 11 or 12 years old. Uh, she wants to do this for a lifetime. She wants to, she and her husband want to work in a developing uh, country. Zeke, who you met, has been in the Darfur for a year, is back trying to stay in school at Colorado State University just because he, uh, he wants to do this for a lifetime as well. And he keeps calling us and saying, I just, I want to get back to Africa. He, he, comes, he comes home here every chance uh, he gets. And Abby and Tim, who are in Jerusalem studying, uh, doing biblical studies, also intend to work in the developing world when they're done with their studies. And Judah, I, I predict, will, will do the same. And I say that because, because I think what we model to our children in the flesh, in the, day, in the everyday is what our children, uh, they not only see, but they end up uh, catching the vision themselves. And, uh, you know, we can sit and we can talk and we can preach to them all day long uh, from, you know, the time they're little. But what they see us do, uh, I think, is what, is what helps transform their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Laura and I did take a break uh, for, two year, for a two-year period since 99 to go back to the U.S., and I did a, a plastic surgery and reconstructive fellowship so that I could uh, be more effective here in, in, uh, in taking care of cleft lips and palates, especially in, in children. And uh, I'll just relate this real quick, Kurt. I know I've been rambling on here. I, I, did a, I fixed a cleft lip of a woman who's 29 years old a couple of weeks ago. She's married. She has three children. 
She came from about six hours away. She'd been walking around her entire life with a scarf around her face because she was so humiliated by, by the deformity of her face. And days after I fixed her lip, I gave her a mirror to look at, and she just stared in the mirror for several minutes, just in, in disbelief. And I've seen her back since, and the, and the joy of both her husband and she, knowing that, that this has been done in the name of Jesus to, to help transform her life, uh, I think speaks volumes to her about the love of Jesus, the God who, who cares enough uh, about her physical appearance, even cares that much more about her spiritual and internal uh, condition as well. I think we really are able to make a difference uh, in a place like this in, in ways that, that maybe we're not even aware of. But I, I would say, Kirk, in closing, um, none of this would be possible uh, without, without Laura. I mean, it's just, she's really the one you should be talking to. She can not only tell the story better, articulate it better, but she's, she's really the impetus uh, behind all of this. I, I think if there's any men uh, out there, the men that are married, know that you, you can't go very far if your wife, if the wife isn't involved or behind the, the decision and the vision and the dream. And that's absolutely true. I say this without exaggeration, not one time, not one time, during that 17 years of struggle, did she ever say, Bill, you know, I think God is trying to tell us something. We need to listen. We need to, to forget this idea and do something else. And I think that's remarkable because having failed and failed and failed many, many times in my life in getting to this point, I can say it's one thing to experience personal failure yourself. It's another thing to have to put somebody else through that kind of failure. But we've always felt like this was not about me. It's not even about us. It's uh, about the Lord Jesus. It's about the kingdom of God. And this, this is so much bigger than any one of us or both of us. And we were committed to the vision and the desire to reach people in the name of Jesus. And that's what continued to motivate us, and continues to motivate us. This is not Shangri-La here. This is not utopia. This isn't the end of the rainbow. The struggles here are every day. It's every day. And to think that the struggles don't exist or will not exist and continue is, is just uh, naive. It's not very smart. There's, there's going to be struggles. And even if we say to God, take my, as we did, take my life and use me for your glory. It does not mean he's going to pave the yellow brick road for us to the end of the rainbow. It means that there's going to be struggles. It's taking up the cross. And there's, there's nothing soft about the cross. But it, the same God who says, take up the cross, come and die, also says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I want to walk with you in that journey hand in hand. And that makes it all the worthwhile, and it makes it very, very satisfying. 
And in closing, Kirk, I'll just say, like I shared with you two or three weeks ago, the passage that I recently read in a study of David's life in Second Samuel 24, after he had committed the crime of, uh, or the, or the, he committed the sin of, of numbering the people in Israel, and, and God killed 70,000 people in Israel. And finally, when the death angel had stopped in Jerusalem, and David wanted to make sacrifice, he wanted to buy that threshing floor of Aruna in, in Jerusalem. And Aruna said, take it, take this, King David, Everything is free. Make your offerings and your sacrifices to God. David's response, I think, is appropriate and applicable for all of us. When he said, I will not offer a sacrifice to my God that costs me nothing. And any sacrifice with anything comes with a cost. But the cost can be something very, very beautiful when we're able to lay our feeble little gift our puny little lives, but redeemed lives at the feet of Jesus and say, take me and use me. I'm ready to, to go and to struggle and to sacrifice along with you for you and for your kingdom. And that's where we are, Kirk. Bill, thank you. Um, I'm just sitting here listening to that story for the third time, you know, first time there and then at PFR conference and here. And I was telling the guys today, I remember when Franklin called me just after the new year, after I turned down the job at the Billy Graham Association, and he said, Kirk, I just want to ask you this question. Have you decided why God crossed our paths? And every time I hear your voice or I think about your wife's face and all that means, or I think about your two sons and remember them sitting around that table these grown men that, that sat there like they were 10-year-old kids being told to sit at the table. It answers for me the question, why God crossed Franklin's path with mine. I'm a better man because I have met you. And I'm grateful for that. And I love your wife and your kids. And you tell your son up there at Colorado that if there's anything that he needs... Uh, we'll make it happen because I care about him and your girls and uh, your other son there, uh, Judah. And I want you to know that I would have not ever believed that I would be sitting here in, in the Bay Area uh, with you on the phone with these men that are going to try and change the world right here from San Francisco with you on the phone from Capsuar. And I know how hard you've worked all day. And we wish that we could do something, but... Uh, we just want to say to Laura and to you and those kids from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for spending a piece of your life with us and reminding us that sometimes it takes a long, long time to get to a place where God wants us to be. And so I'm proud to know you, and I'm thankful that you were willing to take this time with us. Yes. I consider it a privilege to have been able to spend time with you and the other brothers in, in, in this way. It's, it's always very, very humbling because, like I say, I know every guy in that 
room has a story. Every person has a journey, as you do and your wife and your family does. And uh, God wants to God wants to journey with us. And uh, for us to miss that for our brief lifetime, I think is is probably the biggest sin we could we could ever commit and the biggest miss we could ever have. But I would like to say this at 53 years old and having, having struggled like, like we have to have gotten here. Laura and I had an opportunity a couple of months ago, as you know, to go back to Jerusalem and visit, visit many friends there and, and visit Abby and Tim there for a short time. And the biggest thing we came away with was how thankful we were that God had led us in the direction that he had. Of all the different ways and places that he could have taken us, we feel most blessed to be here. We don't look at this as a burden or a sacrifice of any real magnitude being here. We see it as an opportunity and a blessing to be here. And I, I, I would love to hear from any of the brothers there or anybody that would that would like to come out here for a visit. We would love that. We had a we had a beautiful time uh, with you out here and Dr. Furman. We I look forward to the day, Kirk, when you can come on back here. You yeah. Bring your wife, bring your kids, yeah. bring anybody. We'd love to have you. You know, Thank uh, you. you know, Bill Denise. Uh, Denise is up in uh, Sudan with Matt for sixty days. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. You tell you tell her and and Matt as well if they can catch a plane down here, and we'd love to have them. We'll put them up uh, in, in Capsula and let them get some R and R here. We'd love to have them here. Yeah. That would be an honor for us. I was telling the guys here that uh, she said to me, she said, "Our house isn't selling in Atlanta, and you're working a lot of hours. Can I go see our son?" And I said, uh, I said, it's a rare thing that you have asked me for my opinion. <laughs> and, she, and, and she said to me, I'm really not asking. I've already asked Matt. <laughs> and so I said, listen, I said, I said, you go ahead. I said, go on the adventure. And uh, Matt sent me an email and said, Mom and I will be back on my, on my uh, December break on December 22nd. And I said... Wow. That's 60 days. And she said, wow. she, said uh, she wanted to go, so I will pass that message. Um, would you pray for these men as you close? I sure would. Yep, I sure would. Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to not just bow our heads or our, or our knees, but we want to bow our hearts before you with a little bit of a glimpse a little understanding of the love that you must have for us in giving up your son Jesus on our behalf to bring us to yourself we stand amazed and we really stand in quiet and we bless you and we desire, Father, for the love that you have extended to us, each one of us, the men there in that room, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to transform 
each one of us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus, and have us walk in a way where the world, wherever it might be, whichever little corner it might be, would be able to see very, very clearly that we have been changed by the love of Jesus once for all. And that in once deciding that, Father, we would not turn back. Putting our hand to the plow, we would look straight ahead and we would follow straight after you, holding on to the garment of your Son, and enjoying the journey the entire way, being obedient just as your son showed obedience even to the death on a cross. I pray that for every man in there. I pray not just for the men in there, for their lives and for their futures, but the futures of their wives and their kids and extended families and neighborhoods and communities. That in touching them, you would touch all of these, all at the same time. By your grace, give us the opportunity and the ability to do that every day. Let this be a special time that they have together in worship and sharing and learning, in challenging each other, for your sake, for your glory, for their good, and for the good of this world at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Laura, God bless you. I look forward to talking to you real soon. God bless you, Kirk. All right, Thank you. If you're in the neighborhood December 29th, come to the wedding, okay? There we go. That uh, sounds like a plan to me. Blessings. We love it. All right, thank you. All right, love you, brother. God bless you. Bye-bye. You know, we live in such a cool, a cool time. Think that we're just, you know, there, there's a, a soul like that family that if we didn't live right here, we wouldn't be able to do this. And uh, that God would put his finger on you and move me all the way to Capsoar to sit up on, a, on the edge of the Rift Valley, uh, the great escarpment up there. And you sat there and his wife, guys, the lost art of cooking, the woman can cook, buddy. And we ate this meal and sat there and he told this story. And I wish you could take that and you see how he comes across. But you ought to be in his presence and sitting there and looking at his body language of the journey that it took to get them there. When I walked into the operating room, Dr. Furman talks about that before Bill Rhodes came, no surgeon would go. Imagine bringing your son or daughter. When we were there, a little 10-year-old boy had carried his five-year-old brother on his back for 13 kilometers, bit by a mamba. I picture a little 10-year-old kid carrying his little five-year-old brother on his back to get him to a doctor to hope that he would live. No doctor, no surgeon. Becky Williams from our team, our first employee, you ought to see this lady, she is large and in charge, she's a nurse. 
And she'll call these doctors and say, we've got a hospital, 250,000 people. We don't have a doctor. Would you go? Well, could you tell me about it? No. Would you go? When he got there in the operating room, it was a headlight on a DC battery that hung from the ceiling. And you've never met people with greater joy than this. You ought to see these kids. And so I would just say to you, you've got to risk your heart to do that. You've got to risk your leadership to do that. And you've got to risk putting down your vision and taking on God's vision. But I can't imagine not going on a journey like this in each of our everyday lives. Well, Kyung, you come. We've prayed and preached and talked and taught. Terry or Kyung, y'all take it from here. Thank you for allowing that time.